So, we talked for the last couple of weeks about what is available to everyone on planet Earth, a, a relationship with the Creator where they actually can know Him personally, actually hear His voice, like that level of relationship. Uh, we talked about how people can get that and grow in it, uh, how that actually happens through Yeshua's Spirit in each one of us. Uh, we looked at that idiom of the anointing of His Spirit in each of us and how it says that we don't actually need anyone to teach us because His anointing is teaching every one of us about about everything. And the result of that, when, when we have that relationship with Him where he, the anointing of His Spirit is teaching us, is that we, we abide in Him. And it's like we live deeply in Him. We we have that fellowship with, uh, with the Son of Elohim, God. And uh, then we also talked about what, why. why. Why does Yeshua give apostles and prophets and teachers in His community if we each have the anointing and we can all hear His voice? And we looked at how um, the function that apostles and prophets and teachers have is all about hearing Yeshua's voice. It's almost like each one of them is hardwired to hear His voice in, in their own way. And sometimes not only for themselves, but also for communities. Uh, so today, we are going to be looking at a snapshot of what, it, what a get-together of disciples of the Master in the first century actually looked like. It'll be like a little vignette of uh, the early Yeshua movement in, in, in any one of a number of, of uh, the metropolises in the ancient world. And uh, basically, the, the, the thing, and, and how that will apply to us is basically, what does it look like when people who are each hearing Yeshua's voice get together? What does it look like when, when we get together? What could that look like? What did it look like uh, in, the, uh, in the early movement, shall we say? So that's what we're going to look, like, look at here. Um, before we read a passage that describes that, I, uh, I'll share something with you. Like, uh, I, I grew up as a pastor's kid, uh, primarily going to Southern Baptist and Alliance churches. And the Alliance church that I grew up in was relatively charismatic, actually. I didn't realize that until we went to other Alliance churches and I realized how, how not charismatic some of them were. And, and as a kid growing up in that context, I had the assumption that Paul, for instance, was writing his letters directly to our church. Like, I, I, I read us back into the text. And so, when I, when I read about the early believers gathering, I just assumed it looked exactly like the church that I was growing up in. Um, and I, I think we all have a tendency to do that. So maybe it, wouldn't stop, maybe it wouldn't hurt for us to stop for a moment and ask, what did it actually look like when the early believers gathered? Well, where did they gather? At what time of the day? Uh, a couple of questions like that. And there, there, is some, um, there is some variance depending on the city they were in. For instance, Jerusalem had a temple, so the believers gathered at the temple. Uh, Ephesus or Athens or Corinth also had temples, but they were pagan temples, so it didn't work the same way. <laughs> right? So they, they didn't have those kind of facilities outside of Jerusalem. Um, another, another variable would be um, there were synagogues, and in some cities, the, the, the believers in Yeshua, both Jewish and Gentile, they were welcome at the synagogue, so they would go to the synagogue on Saturday morning. They would hear the Torah read aloud. They would hear people expound on it. They would pray with the Jewish community. That was something that was actually quite normal in the first century. And actually, it continued to happen until the 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, there, there are several places in the church fathers where, uh, where uh, some of the church fathers are 
they're, they're railing against some of these Christians who continue to go to synagogue. They continue to go and pray with the Jewish people. And they had a serious problem with that, uh, apparently. But that tells us something. It tells us the early Christians loved the, the Jewish community and they were still going to the synagogue on into the three and the four hundreds, despite some of these uh, early church fathers that had some anti-Semitic issues and had problems with Christians that go to synagogue. So, you know, that did happen. At the same time, there were also times where the early Yeshua communities would get kicked out of the synagogue. They were not allowed to go anymore. Um, there, were, there were a couple instances in the book of Acts where that happened. Eh? So, you know, they were in Jerusalem, they were at the temple for sure. In some cities, they would go to the synagogue on Saturday morning when there was a synagogue and <laughs> if they were actually allowed in the front door. And um, now we're going to look at another place that the early um, Yeshua communities gathered, and I would actually say maybe this was one of the primary ones. This was something that was consistent in every in every city. Uh, they gathered in each other's houses also. They got together at each other's places. Uh, I'll give you a couple uh, verses for this. And this will help us to get a, a bigger picture of what the early church looked like in the first century. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, Day by day, so on a daily basis, continuing with one mind, so they were all totally on the same page, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So they were getting together at each other's houses. They were sharing meals. Not just a little shot glass and not just a little wafer. Like real meals. Like the kinds that friends have when you have each other over. Uh, this was the daily experience of the believers in Jerusalem, even though they also had the temple to go to when they were getting together there. It says um, much the same thing in Acts 5.42. In um, Acts 12.12, the early believers are, are gathering in Jerusalem and they have like an all-night prayer time for Simon Peter, Shimon Kepha, because he's locked up at the home of Miriam. So you can see they got together at someone's house to pray. Um, in Acts 16.40, the early Yeshua community in the city of Philippi got together at the house of Lydia, who was a well-to-do, a socially connected, affluent woman in that city. So she hosted that, uh, that community of disciples in her home. In Acts 20, 20, uh, Shaul, or uh, Paul the Apostle, he says that he taught in Ephesus publicly and from house to house. So I think he was specifically, he was teaching in a school called the School of Tyrannus. And then he was also going from house to house where believers were gathering and he was teaching them. Um, I, I, it would be so neat to follow him around Ephesus, hey? Just to see him go to, go to a house where there were believers gathered and just to see what that would have liked and like, what that would have looked like and, and how he would have taught in those kind of contexts. But that's something we know. Um, in Romans 16, verse 4, a letter that Paul wrote to the Yeshua community in Rome, he says, uh, Greetings to the ecclesia, uh, the, the community or church, or however you want to translate that, that meets at Aquila and Priscilla's house. So Aquila and Priscilla, you know, they, uh, they, had, a, they had a job that they worked together, uh, making, making tents, and then they also had a place, and they would have people over, and they started a group in their home. Paul said, say hi to those guys. Um, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 16.9, at the end of another letter that he writes to the Yeshua community in Corinth, he says almost exactly the same thing. He, uh, he mentions, like, the, the ecclesia, the, the community or church that meets in Aquila and Priscilla's house. So these guys, th this is an interesting picture. Aquila and Priscilla were a husband and wife team that were mobile. They got around. Uh, they, they, they got a place in Rome and they started a group there. Uh, they got a place in Corinth and they started another group there in their place. So that's a, that's a little picture right there of, a, of, of, of dynamic in the early Yeshua community. Um, in Colossians, 
Uh, at the end of Colossians uh, 4.15, Paul mentions the ecclesia, the community or church that met in the house of Nympha. Nympha was a woman. So again, you have a woman who uh, probably had some social connections, um, and she had a sizable house, and she welcomed believers to gather at her place. That's inspiring. And then finally, there's one more reference, and there are others, but I'm just kind of trying to give you a couple little snapshots. In Philemon, chapter 1, verse 2, um, you know, Paul is writing to uh, Philemon, and he mentions the ecclesia, the community or church that meets in your house. So Philemon apparently also had a decent-sized place, and he had a group that gathered at his place. So uh, those are some little glimpses that we catch of the early Yeshua movement, gathering at the temple in Jerusalem, going to the synagogue when they could, and also hosting gatherings at their own houses uh, in Jerusalem, in Ephesus, in Rome, in Corinth, in Colossae, and in the place where Philemon was. And it's iffy. It might have been uh, Ephesus, Laodicea, or Colossae. So that's, that covers the when. That's a snapshot for us of the early Yeshua community. I mean, the where. Uh, a snapshot of where they gathered. The when... This is, this is interesting too. Uh, I, I will admit, when I was growing up, I just assumed that the early Christians got together Sunday morning. It's interesting, and it's easy to read that into the text, because it says that on the first day of the week, the believers got together. Eh? However, when we read the context, when does the first day of the week start in, in the ancient world and in, in Jewish culture? The first day of the week starts Saturday night. That's correct. Just like, just like Shabbat for us starts on Friday night, Sunday starts on Saturday night. So Sunday actually starts on Saturday, if you want to put it that way. And, and that's the context. Um, we, we read several times about believers gathering on the first day of the week, so we know they did that. The question was, was it Sunday morning or was it Saturday night? And I mean, it's not like the kind of thing that you would um, build a denomination over or split a church over, right? But I do think it helps to give us a better picture of the early Yeshua community. Um, in Acts chapter 20, uh, it's part of Luke's travel journal, it talks about a stopover that Paul and his team had. Um, can't remember which city it was in. But it says, on the first day of the week, we gathered together. And, uh, and it goes on to say, Paul kept talking and talking until like halfway through the night. And then, of course, the young man falls out the window. Eutychus falls out the window, right? Um, causes an interruption. And um, you have to ask yourself, was Paul, did they start at like 10 o'clock Sunday morning? And then Paul talked all the way through lunch, all the way through Sunday afternoon, all the way through Sunday evening, and right on until the next morning, Monday morning, where he took off. That would be like 22-hour marathon of talking. Uh, but it's just, that's not feasible, and that doesn't fit the context. Yeah, that's true. People work six days a week. Uh, you know, there were, there were many slaves, for instance, in the early Yeshua community, and they couldn't just get a lot of time off necessarily. So it's probable that late nights or early mornings <laughs> work best for them. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are references in some of the early church fathers like Justin Martyr to believers gathering early, early Sunday morning. You're talking like before the sun even comes up, eh? So I think if we really wanted to be true to tradition there, we should have our church services on Sunday morning at about 5. Oh, if it's, unless it's in, unless it's in uh, Saskatchewan and it's the middle of summer, then we should have our church services more around 3 before sunrise, eh? <laughs> So, you know, the, the passage I really want to bring out here, though, is in, in Acts 20, where it says, on the first day of the week, here's how the Good News Bible translates that passage. On Saturday evening, we gathered together for the fellowship meal. 
Paul spoke to the people and kept on speaking until midnight since he was going to leave the next day. Many lamps were burning in the upstairs room where we were meeting. So that gives us a very clear look at where the early disciples gathered and when they gathered. You know, I think if we were to try to be most true to how the early believers gathered, maybe we would get together Saturday nights. I just, I wonder how that would change, like, the face of um, the body of Christ if we got together on Saturday evenings. That would be interesting, hey? It's just, wow, what, what if we all got together Saturday evenings and we all got to sleep in on Sunday morning? No, <laughs> just kidding. What do you mean, like, did they have a full-blown synagogue service with prayers and, and readings from the Torah, etc.? No, from, from my readings in history, I don't think Saturday night would have been when they had a full-blown synagogue service or anything like that. It probably would have been quite open. Um, they would eat together and uh, interact like that. Yeah. So that's, that's the setting for this little, this, little, and this little snapshot of what things, um, what happened when believers got together in the, in the, uh, the early church, shall we say. And uh, the one I really want to key in on now that we have that context in our minds is 1 Corinthians 14. So Paul is writing to a community that he was influential in forming in the city of Corinth. And uh, he's writing about the use of the, the charismata, I think is the Greek word, like the, uh, the giftings of the Holy Spirit and, and how they're to operate and giving some guidelines and whatnot. And then he concludes, and uh, his conclusion is, is very, um, very relevant, I, I, I think, to the question of what, what does community look like. He says, uh, what is our conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, let everyone be ready with a song or a teaching, or a revelation, or ready to use his gift of tongues, or give an interpretation. But let everything be for edification, like uh, building up, constructive. Right? So that's, that's the passage I really want to key in on. And, and I think this passage is probably like the, um, the figurehead verse of the house church movement. You know, because people in the house church movement will say, look, like this is a description of what would happen when the early believers gathered. And if we only have a traditional service, whether it be like, a, you know, a evangelical or high church or a, or, or, or a Jewish more liturgical service, uh, this just doesn't happen. There isn't room for this. And so, you know, for many people, they read that verse and they say, we need to overhaul how we gather or we have to have additional gatherings where we can have this, uh, this dynamic, this vibe where these kinds of things uh, can happen. And uh, I, I think when Paul like, listed these specific giftings, I assume those aren't the only ones that would happen. I think he was just, he was just giving like, a, little, a little smattering of, of them. Because hey? he did describe other giftings that people have, like healing or uh, words of knowledge or wisdom, etc. So you'd assume that all of these, um, these people were gathering and that these things were all being used. So I, um, I wanted to go over five assumptions that uh, Paul is assuming in this passage. And uh, that's basically all that I want to cover today. This passage is assuming five things I, I want to look at with you guys. Uh, firstly, um, Paul's words here assume that each of those people in the early Yeshua community in Corinth had a relationship with Yeshua and that each of them had a gifting from him and they knew what their giftings were. You can see that. He said, whenever... You get together, let everyone be ready with this or that, ready to use his gift of this 
or that. So you can hear, you can see these were people that were getting together that had a relationship with Yeshua, that knew what they were gifted in, and they were coming ready to uh, ready to participate in the gathering, ready to contribute what they had. I think um, I think that can be that can be a. a I think a weakness of the traditional model of synagogue or church if that's all we do. You know, for many people, their only experience of synagogue as church is when you get together on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning and you have something of a canned program. You know, you have a set of prayers that you pray liturgically. Uh, you, have, you have something that's often being uh, figured out from the front. And, and I can see how there's, there's a place for that. But for many people, that's their only experience. And I think a weakness of that model is you can walk in the door and you can sit down and you don't have to have a relationship with Yeshua for that thing to go. In fact, you can have a whole building full of people that have no relationship with Yeshua, that have no idea whether they have a spiritual gift or what it is, and that system can still go. Because all you need is someone at the front that leads it, um, maybe, the, maybe the pastor, minister, and uh, maybe the worship team, those kinds of things. And if you have a couple people at the front, the whole thing can function without anybody functioning in their gifts, without, without anyone even having a relationship with Yeshua. And I'm not bashing that, that model, because I do believe there is a place for it, right? For a synagogue or church of that kind. But I can see how we need more than that, or we need something in addition to that. Which is scary, because like, I, I think that's where it's easy to become a cultural Christian or a cultural Jew, because nothing is required or expected of you. You, you go and you just sit down, you know? And instead of encouraging you to have that relationship with the master, or challenging you with that, it almost like you said, it almost can take it away from people when they're forbidden to uh, to operate like that. Yeah, you're right. It can be idolatry of a leader or idolatry of a system, you know, a certain tradition or whatever. Yeah. Uh, The second, the second thing this uh, this passage is assuming is that the spirit is present in a gathering of disciples, and the spirit is moving. You know, the Spirit prompts this person to say something. The Spirit moves through this person in another way. That's the second thing that this passage uh, is, is assuming. Uh, the third thing this passage is assuming, and this is more, uh, more symbolic than literal, perhaps, but this passage is assuming that disciples are gathering in a circle. They're not just facing the front. Um, the idea there, like, if, if you think of, like, if you have lines of people facing the front... It's like it pictures a certain mindset, a certain way of doing things. When you picture a people of ga- people gathered in a circle, that pictures another mindset, another way of doing things. So I'm not saying this literally necessarily. I don't know what it looked like, but you can definitely you can definitely see that with the concept of like a circle. To me, that would represent um, something that's interactive, that rather than being passive. You know, when you gather in a circle. Um, it's just the way it is. Like when you gather around the table at a family family dinner or a family reunion or or something like that, you just assume everyone will be um, will be interacting, and it's not a passive deal. Uh, it assumes that like gathering in a circle assumes um, everyone participating rather than being spectator oriented, and uh, it assumes a gathering that's led by the spirit rather than one person. So that's, that's the third thing that this passage uh, assumes, is that believers are gathering in more of a circle kind of mindset than like in rows facing the front kind of mindset. Uh, the fourth thing that this passage assumes is that it's an open setting. So it isn't programmed, scripted, pre-formatted, pre-planned in its entirety from start to finish because people come and people have things to share. 
they're ready to share. Someone says, you know, I was reading the Word and I have this teaching that I'd like to share. Or, you know, I was just uh, driving down the road and I had a revelation that I would like to share. Or someone just cuts in with a tongue or something. I'm not sure how that one would always work. And then someone would give the interpretation. You know, so you can tell, like, you, when, the, when the Spirit moves, you can't can the thing. You can't program the thing. You can't pre-plan the thing. The, the, the Spirit is a... Ah, I, I like this, actually. The, the old Celtic believers, I think, they, they called the Holy Spirit the wild goose. And it's because, because like you can't you can't tell a goose when it's going to go and when it's going to come and where it's going to go. It's it's like a wild animal and not you know wild in in a good sense in a not controllable a not tame sense. And I and I love that uh, about the spirit. And in saying what I said too, like I, I do think there's a time to have some to have a plan. You know, for instance, we had some songs today that Genevieve prayerfully chose ahead of time. And we had them up on the wall so that we could actually all know the words, especially with those Hebrew songs, you know, that makes people who don't know Hebrew or who are near here, it makes them feel a part of things instead of being like, these people are all singing a song and I have no idea what they're singing and I don't know how to follow along. You know, so I, I do believe in planning ahead to some degree. You know, I mean, I came with a teaching prepared because that's the way I like to think, you know, to make sure I have my thoughts organized so I don't waste your time or I bounce all over the place uh, like a ping pong ball, that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I do believe there's a balance there, of course. But it's something we do see in the early Yeshua movement, though. They were not, it wasn't totally canned or scripted. Uh, the fifth and last thing that this passage assumes, that, that I can identify, is it assumes that those gatherings were small enough that everyone could actually participate. So it actually assumes that this wasn't like a massive assembly of people, that it was a gathering that was small enough where everybody could, uh, could have, have a part to play. Eh? And... It's like sometimes we would think, oh, that's, that's not a big deal, you know? But I actually believe that was something that the early believers gathered, like the power of smallness, or, or the, the intimacy or the dynamic that you have in a small gathering. And again, is that to say, never have big gatherings? No, they gathered at the temple, they went to the synagogue when they could, etc. You can definitely see that the early believers, maybe you could even say that like, their primary community life happened in smaller gatherings. That's when, because this is what Paul describes. He says, when you guys gather as a community, everyone has something to, to contribute. Everyone's moving in their gifting. It assumes that you're small enough that everyone can do that. Because if you have two or three hundred people, guess what? And everyone functions in their gifting, guess what? It's going to either be chaotic, or you're going to be there for like 30 or 40 hours before everybody chips in and shares their contribution, their revelation, or their teaching, or their song, or their tongue, or whatever, right? And... Uh, that's not edifying, actually. <laughs> Make you all sick. You run your immune system down staying up that late, eh? Uh, anyway, that's just that's something so simple, but I think something very powerful is uh, the, the, the power of small gatherings and, uh, and small groups. Uh, very often, um, in let's say with church planting, there will be a church that, um, let's say a missionary starts, or, or a pastor in some new location or something, and, and it'll begin small, and it'll have this, this romance to it, kind of this magic to it, where everyone's participating, and, and people are chipping in, and there's this newness and this freshness, and then they start to grow. And they reach a certain point where they decide, do we get a building? Do we become more structured and formatted? Or... What if we multiplied into several groups that still got together, that still stayed in relationship, but that stayed small so that we could have that interactive uh, feeling, hey? And I mean, we're not there as a community, but there may be a time in the future when we'll have to make that, well, when we'll have to face that. You know, if we continue to grow, as we have new believers that join us, um, we, may have, we may reach the point where we say, 
do we want to just have a big gathering and possibly have some people fall through the cracks, possibly have some people that stop functioning, or do we want to stay small and maybe you could say like birth a new group or multiply into several small groups that still also gather as a community. And you know, like I said, maybe we're not exactly there. You know, we, we have a group that's forming at our house on Friday nights. We have a group that might be forming on Sunday evenings, uh, talking about house church stuff. You know, but uh, that's just something to something to uh, to hold in our minds. I, I have talked with several people that had that happen, where they they had a house group and it got too big for the house, and they had to make that choice: do we uh, move to a bigger venue and risk killing the the beauty of this? Um, or do, do we split into two separate groups? And if we split, how do we do that? That sounds painful. That sounds like a divorce. Do you just split down the middle arbitrarily based on which neighborhood people live in or based on friendship groupings or, or what? And uh, I had a couple of friends who, who ha- were in groups where they had to face that. And one friend said that's what they tried to do. They tried to just split it down the middle. And it was painful and it was hard and it was not a fun process. It felt more like a divorce, he said. I have another friend who said what they decided to do was to view it more as a birth. And so they birthed a new group. So they sent a couple couples or a couple families to start a new group, and most of the, the, uh, the group remained intact and stayed the same. And I thought, and, and they said that was actually a very exciting and beautiful and joy-filled thing, because instead of it feeling like a divorce, it felt like a birth. You're birthing a new group with the people that feel called to go and start that new group. So again, it's, it's one of those things to, to hold in mind. You know, I, I want to continue to always gather as a community here. But hey, you know, as we have more small groups grow in, in, our, in our community, um, I, would, I would be so excited if we could see new groups birthed into new neighborhoods, new groups birthed into new people's homes. Like seriously, that, that's my dream for the city. That's my, my dream for our community. I want to have lots of births like that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.